Perverted, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Afro Verdict podcast with your host, Victor Anakin. Today is the penultimate day of the Eastern Economic Forum that took place in Russia. What that is, is basically an international forum aimed at fostering business relations and creating investment opportunities. During the event, Russia's President Vladimir Putin made some interesting statements concerning the African continent. Let's hear what the President had to say. If you look at our cooperation with Africa, yes, we helped the African nations. And what did the former colonizers do? Back in 1957, people were brought in cages from Africa to European countries, such as Belgium. It's impossible to watch without tears. Children were on display in cages. They brought people in cages and put them on display, including whole families, but kept the children separately. How could one forget this? Africa will never forget. All right, now to help me take apart and analyze what we've just heard, I'm joined by Professor Ian Liebenberg, political scientist and professor at the University of Namibia and Stellenbosch University in South Africa. Prof, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I'm ready to discuss. Great. Now, what historical events have cut so deep into the hearts and memories of the African people that are simply impossible to forget? Well, Victor, there are many, many things, uh, and we can speak for many, many hours about it. Uh, but let us start off with the era of colonialism, uh, which uh, involved virtually all European countries. Um, I can quickly brief you on them. First is the Netherlands, the Belgians, the French were involved later on, the British were involved. The slave trade was the trigger for that all. And people sometimes talk about the triangle of slave trade. Uh, even for a short while, uh, the Germans were involved. Uh, in competition with the uh, British in West Africa. Uh, but obviously, a lot of this trade took place by taking slaves from the West African coast, the South African coast, and later on also slaves uh, from the Far East. Now, most of these slaves ended up in Western-held territories in Latin America, uh, in Brasilia, but also on the United States of America shores. Needless to say, also many of them were taken to countries like Cuba, which were under control of the Spanish. The Spanish played a greater role in slave trade, and so did the Portuguese. And I think what we can call collective historical memory is something not easily to be wiped out. Even today, if you visit Dakar in Senegal, they take you to Ile de Goree, which was an infamous point from which slaves were taken and uh, then had to traverse under horrible conditions um, the roads to the West, namely Brasilia, namely American, um, what is North American areas, uh, Cuba, where they were used um, as slaves. 
basically to produce cotton, to produce tobacco, to produce um, uh, various forms of, of rubber and other products, uh, and meant obviously for uh, consumption in Europe and for refinement. Uh, which means that it was a profit-driven exercise, but at the cost of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of uh, the lives of slaves on that slave ships, in which conditions were subhuman. Uh, people were chained uh, on the ships. Uh, people had no facilities for ablution etc. And those that died were simply dumped over the ships. So, and they overloaded the ships, which is a strange logic, so that enough slaves could arrive uh, on the, the western shores of North and South, this North and Southern American continent. Um, that is one thing. I think there's a second wave that we cannot underestimate. And that is the outcomes of colonialism in loco. If you think about the Belgian rule um, of the Belgian Congo under King Leopold, where the estimates uh, differ from between two and six million people that died uh, during the rule, a brutal rule by the Belgian Congo under the the king, King Leopold. Uh, we can speak about the attacks uh, of and the taking of land by the Portuguese in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. Uh, we can talk um, about, for example, the assaults of British colonialism in Southern Africa. We can recall the two Anglo-Boer Wars um, an attempt to take control of the Transvaal and later the Transvaal and the Orange Free State Republics, which led to uh, the concentration camps in which about 27,000 uh, Boers or white people died and more than 30,000 black people died. By the way, they were separated in different uh, concentration camps with the black concentration camps receiving much less in terms of food and shelter than was given to the, the Boer um, people that were incarcerated in the concentration camp. Uh, then we are not even at the brutal taking over of Angola in more modern times, where revolts in Angola led to the Portuguese authorities to do attacks on innocent villages and so on. Uh, one of that, the estimates are that at least 20,000 Angolans were shot, uh, many of them in aerial attacks. So there's a lot of memories that, that will hardly be forgotten by African people. We can bring it even to a much closer in history, a more contemporary case. Uh, we can think about Italy's attempt to colonize Algeria um, and the attempt of them to colonize Abyssinia, which was an independent African state, uh, all of it leading to hundreds of thousands of deaths. 
and profit, obviously, for the Italian colonizers under Benito Mussolini. Uh, and then we can bring it further up to neocolonialism, uh, the attacks and the destruction destruction of an independent and sovereign Libya in 2011. So yes, if we talk about collective historical memory, there are many. And as we know, it takes a long time for that memories to disappear. Just a short footnote also, the German colonization of what is today Namibia, which was then called German West Africa, or Deutsch West Africa, uh, led to the Lama genocide and the Herero genocide. The Hereros losing up to 80% of their population and the Lamas up to 50%. So yes, long-lasting memories just to begin with. Mr. Limberg, thanks a lot for that historical review. Now, considering that several Western heads of states have previously acknowledged their role in the tragic historical events of the European occupation of the African continent. Do you think these apologies that they've reiterated could be sufficient for what they have done? Well, I'll speak to one example. The Germans, after a long while, very reluctantly and half-heartedly apologized uh, for what was done to the Herero people in Namibia. Uh, later on, the apologies became a little bit more, uh, let us say, pronounced. And so technically, they have apologized for that. But if we can see in Namibia, there are still a strong movement of Namibian people, both from the Herero and the Nama community, to say, well, uh, apology is not enough. There should be some form of compensation for the survivors of the genocide. And uh, there's a long-standing process uh, with many itches, uh, sometimes shortcomings, sometimes short uh, or, or small compromises in how should such a compensation be structured. But yes, indeed, some, some uh, countries did apologize, Western Af uh, Western. Uh, countries, others not so much. Uh, well, interestingly, Berlusconi, rather belated, before 2011, visited Tripoli and apologized on behalf of the uh, Italian people for their brutal colonization of Algeria, Abyssinia, and other areas. Uh, but the irony is... <laughs> And the supreme irony is when the Gaddafi regime were, were toppled in uh, Libya in 2011, the Italian uh, Air Force participated in attacks uh, together with the French, uh, where the massive deployment uh, of the Rafael fighters uh, to dislodge uh, the infrastructure of Libya. And uh, these joined operations, ironically, and that against the background of the French, having colonized West Africa for many years, uh, ended up in a supreme irony. You apologize on the one hand, and a, a year or two later, you partake in, in uh, destroying a sovereign states such as Libya, which had, by the way, uh, no debt 
It does seem a bit ironic then, doesn't it? Indeed, indeed. Do you think representatives of Western states talk enough about the crimes committed against the African people by their ancestors? No, not at all. Uh, there's a, a quite clearly a certain form of deep denialism, uh, a sort of, um, in a way, it is difficult from their side to say uh, fully uh, make an apology. Uh, they'd rather say it was a historical mistake. Uh, and I don't think the discussions are going much further than Yes, let's admit historical mistakes and and perhaps talk compensation. Uh, but uh, to go that far to say that we were involved in, in genocide and brutal colonization, that's taking it a little bit too far. Is it sufficient? I don't think so from the view of the African previous colonies, the now African states that suffered under that. So... To conclude in answering this question of yours, no, I don't think it is happening. You see a sort of denialism, a sort of unwillingness to engage in past discussions, very akin to Germany discussing the Holocaust uh, in Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler. Yeah, it was a big mistake, but yeah, we always qualify our admission. For those of you that have just tuned in, this is your host Victor Anakin and you're listening to Afro Verdict. Now that we've reminisced and took a brief historical detour, let's hear what else Russia's president had to say today. And now they are still trying to command and implement their generally new colonial policies there. They have burdened all the countries in Africa. They owe trillions in dollar terms. In other words, they have created a credit and financial system with African countries within the framework of which African nations cannot pay back the loans given to them by definition at all. This is not even a credit relationship. It is some kind of indemnity. Our approaches are completely different. They have been and remain so. All right, Prof, to what extent do you agree with the idea that Western policy in Africa today often resembles neocolonialism? Well, I think uh, President Putin's statement echoes what has been written by development economists and economists that wrote about independence independence um, theor- uh, theories and that, that wrote a lot about economic exploitation post-colonialism uh, on African states and what, what we can call neocolonialism. And if you look at uh, authors like Wallerstein and Antti Wurfeld, they made it clear that a scenario developed that one could call the development of underdevelopment. The way the African countries and to some extent Latin American countries were pushed into a situation where the Western prescribed their economic models on them via the Washington consensus that is still attempting to last today. Uh, the creation of the International Monetary Fund, 
the integration or the creation of the World Bank, that certainly represented uh, colonialism of a special type or new colonialism. And uh, these are not new debates. These are coming from the late 1960s on the exploitation of Africa. And I think the President Putin uh, has just reiterated what is uh, global knowledge, or at least knowledge in the global south, uh, and that was debated and in terms of economic analysis, clearly proved over the past two, three decades. Yeah, and sticking to the same sort of topic, as an example of the new colonialist approach, the Russian president cited the monetary policy pursued by financial institutions towards African countries, which often leads to dependence and excessive debt from which these countries are unable to recover at the end of the road. Currently, more and more voices are being raised to create an alternative to this system. In your opinion, to what extent is Africa in need of such an alternative? I'm going to take it a little bit further back, um, Victor. You will remember um, that during the era of independence of African states, or what some refer uh, as the Uru era, where these states in Africa, many of them, uh, from the late 50s, Algeria, Egypt in the 50s, many to follow in the 60s, and some only in the 70s, like Angola and Mozambique, uh, we see a situation where uh, there was indeed uh, imposition of Western economic frameworks and paradigms on African states that restricted their ability to grow. And uh, hyperbolically stated, and I think many years ago, an uh, economist, Margaret Legum, actually wrote an article saying how the third world countries are sponsoring the first world's debt. So there was an extremely uneven relationship, which um, precluded the ability of African states to grow economically. Uh, because of the unfair rules and the top-down uh, management of the economies, you would know that uh, West Africa were forced into the franc CFN zone while they didn't want it, but they couldn't question the uh, French imposition of that economic order. Uh, so indeed, it's it's been happening uh, from long ago through the neocolonialism. Does Africa need to come out of it? I think the original rumblings of it was the creation of the so-called non-aligned movement, where Western countries and others in the South said, uh, including Cuba and some Latin American countries, uh, made it quite clear that they do not want to take sides between the conflict between what was then called First World order or the first world countries, the so-called core countries of the world, that's the West, uh, and what was then called pejoratively and negatively from the West, the so-called second world countries, meaning the uh, Union of Soviet Republics and uh, countries like India and specifically China. And uh, <laughs> the logical outcome was obviously that even if you're a non-aligned movement, you would 
but rather uh, have empathy or sympathy with those that persisted you during your liberation struggles, which was the then Soviet Union, today Russia, China, and others. Uh, so there we also see a historical split already. Uh, but there was not much economic clout to resist the Western economic onslaught. But that has coalesced into and slowly transformed into uh, what is now a much stronger entities on the global scenario. Uh, we're talking about BRICS coming to the fore. In the 1970s, we're talking about OPEC coming to the fore by the way in which Muhammad Gaddafi played a very important role. Uh, we're talking about BRICS now expanding to the BRICS Plus with various other countries joining and making the African footprint far stronger. So I think the realization was always with, with African countries, how do we get out of Western subservience? And the past two decades are proving uh, to us that it is happening more and more, and that what Africans then believed would be beneficial for them, namely to move out of the Western hemispheres uh, in, in, in positions, uh, is now taking place ever since BRICS was established, but it is now uh, escalated to broader movements. BRICS Plus being stronger, uh, if we look at the uh, econ economic uh, meetings in the East, the Euro-Asian Euro meetings, and those now attended by President Putin, uh, you see there's amalgamation of uh, strategies and forces to say, so far and no longer. And African states fully agreed with it, in fact, have wished for it for at least 50, 60 years. But now opportunities are open globally uh, to strengthen their stance and um, coalesce or uh, bolster the, the uh, strategy of economic independence from the West. And and do you think the West sees some sort of threat in this? <laughs> I don't know whether they realize that they are threatened. Frequently, uh, I get the feeling that they have not realized that since 2010, uh, the global economic tectonics, as well as political power structures, has been changed right under their noses. Uh, there's a sort of denialism, a sort of uh, unwillingness to see it, or maybe they were just simply unaware of it by focusing so much on themselves that they didn't realize what was going on. Uh, I think, for example, uh, the Westerners didn't really realize what happened in the middle of the 1980s when China embarked on its 50-year plan of the four reforms or call it uh, revolutions in terms of education, in terms of science, in terms of military, in terms of technology. Or maybe they thought, ah, oh, well, we can ignore it. Uh, this is but a second world country trying to make their little plans. Uh, but the Chinese 50-year plans, some of them were achieved already by 2012. 
and it seems that somewhere, somehow, some Western analysts and even economists missed this. Uh, and maybe uh, in their focus on all the negativities in Africa, famine, interstate wars, uh, intrastate wars, the perspective in their mind was created that Africa will always remain the dark and divided Africa. And they didn't focus on other things in terms of inter-Africa cooperation that has increased substantially. They haven't noted that the growth rate in some African countries increased over time. Uh, so, yeah, if, if they're not yet threatened, it is through ignorance. Uh, in all reality, any realistic assessment will prove that they are in a decline. In fact, you can argue that the economy of the United States of America has been a slow decline since 1973. It was faster in, nine, in the 1980s. Uh, it went on in the 1990s. Uh, if you look at the living standards of people in the United States of America, the lower uh, part of the pyramid, 80% of, of American population have now lower right uh, of life quality than before. And then the, the rumblings, the very strong rumblings of the American crisis, 28, 29, uh, hasn't bettered the situation. What America are losing in economic power, however, it is now as predictable with empires that are declining, are uh, expanding military power, projecting that military power over hundreds of hundreds or thousands of kilometers in the hope that they can maintain the leading dominant or hegemonic uh, position. And this applies to many of the European countries. I think the past two years has shown that there are huge financial problems in France. We've seen it in the many demonstrations. There was even demonstrations in Spain, smaller ones in uh, Portugal. Certainly, and very much a lot of that in the United Kingdom. So there are great unhappiness there. That is a clear signal that times they are changing. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for that. And uh, just uh, my last question as a follow-up. Uh, now that you've, you've mentioned and described all of these, uh, so to say, crises that are going on in Western countries, it is now evidently African countries are better off at least collaborating with each other on a closer level. Since you were talking about China and uh, countries of uh, South America, as well as African states, how does cooperation between countries of the global South promote their mutual development uh, in comparison to their cooperation with countries of the global North and the West specifically? I think indeed very much so. If you look at the BRIC summit and you look at the discussions that were now taking place with the Eastern Forum, Eastern Economic Forum, you clearly see that there is a coming together of mind. Uh, President Putin rightly pointed out that the Soviet Union, neither Russia thereafter, tried to colonize Africa and that uh, they, to a large extent, actually only interfered in Africa when they came to the support of countries that were still under the Western heel. Um, and I think that statement by Putin, by the way, 
reiterated by the Chinese uh, president while they were here in South Africa uh, during the BRICS summit is for me a clear indication uh, that we are moving in a totally new direction. And it is not a surprise to me that uh, African countries and Latin American countries have a more positive view uh, of countries like China, like India, and like Russia, because those never participated in colonization. Instead, they were the victims of Western colonization. And like in all rational politics, people weigh up their thoughts, their ideas, the historical calculus, and they say, no, it is better for us to work together and to strengthen that and get a broader footprint. Now, I think uh, the joining of the AU to the G20 is another example of it. Um, there is a, a footprint outside the Western world, NATO, the EU, and the United States of America uh, that is growing. And it's certainly, certainly going to put immense pressure on the Western economy. Um, how long it will take, we don't know. What I do think is the American economy's implosion is no further from now than five years. Uh, it could be earlier. Uh, and that will change the world order, uh, both in multipolar terms, firstly economically, and secondly, eventually pol- politically. So multipolarity has become an inescapable phenomenon. It's only a matter of time when it will be fully reached. And that is basically the whole global situation beautifully summed up in a brief interview with South Africa's Ian Liebenberg. Thank you for joining Afro Verdict today. Truly appreciate your time and effort, sir. And I'm quite sure that our listeners will find your insight absolutely indispensable. Thank you very much. Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something new. Remember that you can follow our updates on the Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, Twitter account, as well as other social media. Don't forget that you can listen to our Afrovertic podcast on multiple platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, Afropods, Castbox, as well as Deezer. That is all for today's Afrovertic episode. And that said, I'll see you next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.